Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Play Sheet Podcast. I'm joined, as always, with my good friend, Joe. Hey there. And, uh, Joe, we finally made it to the end of the season. One extra game week this year. It's been an absolute treat. I, I mean, I genuinely feel like it's been one of the closest seasons that we've had today. Plenty of upsets and plenty going on around the league at the moment. So we've got a lot to cover in this episode. A lot to cover off. Let's get straight into it. Yeah, so let's start then just looking at probably some of the key outcomes from last week in the games. And I mean, let's begin Jacksonville and the Colts, Joe. I mean, we were hammering the Jags last week. And what do they go and do? Well, this is kind of one of those ones where I would say it's like an accumulator breaker, but the odds were so bad on this game that if you put it in your accumulator, you're a bit of an idiot. Like, no one, no one realistically saw the Jags beating the Colts. The Colts, two weeks ago, and I'm taking this from uh, Matt Eisen, the Colts, two weeks ago, were the team that no one wanted to face in the playoffs. This week, they're the team that no one will face in the playoffs because it's just not going to be there. What a reversal of fortune. We were talking about them a couple of weeks ago, absolutely on fire, and they just imploded. Yeah, it was absolutely crazy. I think one of the good things to see was we spoke about Lawrence, and where's that been all season? Yeah, where has it been all season? And it's one of those weird ones, because it's not like it's the last season game where it didn't matter. The Colts, the Colts were trying to win. Lawrence played well. He seemed to look comfortable was making the right decisions, wasn't doing the kind of boneheaded throws to cornerbacks and double coverage that he has been doing for far too much. Looked far better. Focusing on the Colts, though, because let's just look at the Colts for a moment here. I have said on this show quite a few times in the past that I'm not really the biggest fan of Carson Wentz. I think that he's been overrated, that his reputation was based on one season, that Frank Reich kind of holds him in too high regard. He's almost like an abusive partner who Frank Reich just won't give up on. And I think a lot of this loss is down to Carson Wentz because when when the game couldn't be put on the shoulders of Jonathan Taylor, when the Jags were clearly targeting that part of a game plan, Carson Wentz just couldn't come up with the goods when it had to switch with him being the focal point of the offence. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I suppose the thing that surprised me the most, though, is that their running game has not been a surprise. You know, there have been better teams than the Jags that have come up against Jonathan Taylor and still not been able to shut it down. I mean, just even thinking about the run-up to this game, they beat the Cardinals, they beat the Patriots, they beat the Bills. They've been in form and on fire, and this just felt like it came out of nowhere. It felt like, you know, you've pointed out offensively, they struggled, which, I mean, only scoring 11 points against the Jags, absolutely. But also defensively as well, they seemed to massively not be able to maintain a Jags team that pretty much every other team in the league so far this season has comfortably handled. Yeah, and look, it came very late for them. It came at the wrong time for them. It would have come sooner or later, but it showed that there's a weakness in this Indiana team. I do believe that it is Carson Wentz who's the fundamental problem here. Because the passing game was just terrible. And Carson Wentz was having to throw to wide receivers in single coverage. Because the Jags, for a lot of the game, were loading the box. They had eight men in the box. They were trying to stop the run. When Wentz was throwing it, he was throwing it in one-on-one situations. And he was throwing interceptions in one-on-one situations. He was putting the ball where a defender can get it in a one-on-one situation. And a good quarterback just won't do that. It's a shame for Wentz. It's a shame for Frank Reich. Because, you know, they'd built a lot of 
momentum. They were very strong going into the second half of the season. If this game just hadn't happened, if we had, you know, a 16-game season, they'd be being touted right now as one of the dark horses, but not really a dark horse because everyone's calling them a dark horse. They'd be that team that no one wanted to face in playoffs. As it stands, they'll be going into the off-season with a lot of questions, a lot of questions around Wentz, a lot of questions of where the direction of this team is right now. And there's going to have some soul-searching for what the long-term solution for this football club is at the quarterback position during this off-season. I don't think they'll do anything snap. I think while Frank Reich is there, Carson Wentz still is, you know, favourite to at least be given the benefit of a doubt. But for me personally, they're not going to win anything with Carson Wentz under centre. So do you think that it's... I mean, finding a decent quarterback we know is not an easy thing in this league. But do you think that they've got pretty much the rest of the pieces there that if they can land a decent quarterback, they're in a position to be competing strongly against some of the best? I wouldn't go as far as saying the necessary pieces. What I would say is that in the 2021 season, the pieces they handed there, they got the most out of. I'm talking about players like Xavier Rhodes. So Xavier Rhodes, his last couple of seasons at Minnesota, he looked finished. He was a pro bowler. He, he was at one point one of the best cornerbacks in the league. Minnesota cut him. I don't think it was even a trade. It might have been a trade for like a fifth round or something, but they didn't get any value back from him. Went to the Colts. Bit of a shaky first season, but this last season, he didn't play in the last game against the Jags, but he played for the rest of the season. Very, very good at the cornerback position. And there's stories like this through this Colts team. Now, will they be able to get these same performances out of these players going forward, going next season? That's a different question. Do they have certainties at every position across the field? No, they don't. You know, running back, you're set. Wide receiver, there's enough talent at wide receiver. There's some great pieces in the offensive line. But defensively, there are probably still question marks about whether the form we've seen from players who are there will be replicated in the future. So to answer your question, do they have all the pieces? No, I wouldn't say that. Are they going to have to replace players? Most likely, probably, because they won't be able to maintain this. But should they be competitive? Yes. They're not a team now, or they shouldn't be a team now, that suddenly goes 6-11, and 5-12. No, they're not that. They should build on this. But, like I say, I feel that sometimes I'm perhaps maybe too harsh on Carson Wentz. I, I criticise Carson Wentz quite a lot, but I feel that there's too much credence given to him sometimes and, and, and people are too willing to give him the benefit of a doubt. Yeah, well, one thing's for sure, that will certainly sting. Uh, I mean, I'm sure going into that game, pretty much all of the players must have thought we're going to the playoffs and looking forward to, to that postseason and now that's that's disappeared. So real shame for the Colts, but congratulations to the Jags and not giving up right until the end of the season there that one's going to sting and maybe provide a bit of fuel for the fire next season yeah and you couldn't write it really that a team that has that much momentum and form is getting beaten by a team that's in such disarray that a whole lot of their fan base has gone to the game dressed up in clown uniforms well, if we're talking about things that you couldn't really script, the next game that we're going on to talk about, Joe, Chargers versus Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, wow. I mean, we talked about it last week. We said whoever does this needs to win to go into the playoffs or to guarantee their spot in the playoffs, depending on how things go elsewhere. The game went to overtime, and there was a point where you were thinking, are the Steelers going to be knocked out and are both of these teams going to go through? It was all very up in the air and very dramatic right to the dying minute of the game. Rumours are that the Raiders were allegedly going to kneel on the ball 
and take the draw. Allegedly. I'm not sure if that was just chat from after the game. But, yeah, what a game. I think that if that had been a draw, it would have been one of those all-time kind of NFL moments. Ultimately, Raiders scraped it. Daniel Carlson, hero of the day, kicked the winning field goal. Raiders are through to playoffs. Do you, do you give them much of a chance of progressing, Charles, or are they most definitely a one-and-done team? I just don't know with this team. You know, we talked about it briefly last week and just said every time that you think the Raiders are out and you're counting them out, they just have one of those performances that seemingly comes from nowhere and they pull it together. We talked about how Carr has been very composed this season and has led from the front. I think this was another game in which he continued to demonstrate that quality. Look, hand on heart, I wouldn't have expected them to get this far. I am not expecting them to progress past the first round. But this Raiders team has proven me wrong a few times this season. And hey, I'm looking forward to them proving me wrong again because it's fun as hell. I'm sure that it'll be fun, whatever happens. But yeah, look, we spent a lot of time speaking about it on a previous show. But Carr has just got to be given a lot of respect for what he has done keeping it together for this team and keeping the team itself together as well. Very disappointing for the Chargers. A team that has Justin Herbert at its quarterback. A team with the quality they have. And with that quality they have, there's been, I think, so many small errors by players who should be doing better. I mentioned this last week as well, but, you know, your Keenan Allens, your Mike Williams, the drops we've seen from those guys, the fumbles from the running backs, Austin Eckler, the mistakes the defense have been making with blown coverage. There's talent within this team but ultimately part of talent is being able to put out a consistent performance and this team just have not been consistent in any measure at all for quite a while now a good few seasons and until they manage to string some consistency together they're never going to be a serious contender in the AFC it's funny because I was watching the game and going into the kind of dying minutes of it I couldn't help but think back to last week's podcast and just what you were saying around the defensive issues that they have there with the kind of lacking consistency and, and sometimes how that concentration goes and they drop the ball on a few things but also you mentioned some of the just weird coaching decisions and some of the game calls that are made and it just felt like all that was coming back to haunt them again this week absolutely and that kind of gives a good segue into what we're going to talk about next we're going to spend some time just chatting briefly about coaches who've been fired and personnel changes we won't get into the weeds too much because some of this will be covered in the videos that I'll be doing for YouTube and talking about teams at Crossroads. But a coach who hasn't been fired, who, if there was ever a play representing a cry for help, did you see the Giants game, Charles? Yes, I did. And I know where you're going with this. On their own fourth yard line, being 3-0 down, in a meaningless 17th game of the season with nothing on the line, the Giants opted to do two straight quarterback sneaks from third and well, second and nine, and then third and nine. It was probably the most cowardly play I've ever seen. The fans were rightly up in arms. Joe Judge had, in the press conferences that week, called the Washington football team, I believe, something like a clown outfit, or implied they were a clown organization, something along those kind of lines. I think what we saw from the Giants was absolutely shameful. I would go as far right now saying that I believe the Giants are the worst organisation in the NFL. There's bad teams out there, don't get me wrong. The Jags have fans going to games, dresses, clowns to protest at how badly that team is being run. But I would say right now the Giants are 
literally, definitely the worst team in football. And a quarterback sneak, third and nine, is the personification of that. So a really good point that you raised and the fact that they still have their coach and still have their GM, because when you think about... GM's gone, Charles. GM's gone. But he retired. He didn't get fired. Gettleman retired. So they will be getting a new GM, but coach Joe Judge is still in place. Yeah, so Joe Judge is gone. I mean, absolutely the right move. But seriously, guys, can you not do it before a Tuesday or after the weekend? We've got a podcast to run here. When you think about the assets that they have acquired over or previously did have several years back and where they are now, that feels like such a steep decline. And they've got nothing back for players like Odell Beckham, really. Just feels like they really dropped the ball on that front. Yeah, but I would say that some of the decisions they've made haven't necessarily been ones that are head scratches. You look at some of the personnel choices the Raiders have made, drafting players in the first round to very arguably should have been third or fourth round picks. And the general consensus is that the Raiders have just made very bad moves, have made stupid moves. Stuff that the Giants have done, I mean, given a good contract to Kenny Golladay, no one was really calling that stupid. And there were quite a few people, you know, myself included, who thought that was a pretty good move. Golladay looked like a stud wide receiver at the Lions. He looked like he'd suit a player like Daniel Jones taking passing from him. Golladay hasn't scored a touchdown this season. Not one single touchdown. And it's not like there's been yards, because I mean, like there was that stretch a season or two ago where Julio Jones didn't get a touchdown for something, like, for something silly, like 12 games. But he was getting like 120 yards a game, so things were fine. Golladay just has been a non-entity for most of the season. Kadarius Tony drafted him first round. No touchdowns from him. The offense of this Giants team is horrendous. Now, Joe Judge, we mentioned this on one of the earliest pod episodes, he was a special teams coordinator and there was questions about whether a special teams coordinator would be able to step up and head coach a team. I'm not going to write off all special teams coordinators out there, but Joe Judge, for me, I would say is probably lucky to still be in a job. Yeah, well, certainly based on the performance of this season, you'd say without a shadow of a doubt. And last season. And last season, really. Yeah, the thing. I think the thing about you, you're right. If you look at it in totality, you're absolutely right. But I think there were flashes of Daniel Jones last season, weren't there, that maybe gave people hope and thought, oh, well, okay, if he can bring Daniel Jones on, then this team has something. But wow, did that dissipate this season. Yeah, you can't say that Jones has made any forward steps. But then again, how would he be able to? Well, exactly. There's no line in front of him. The receivers don't seem to know what routes they're running. The coaching there, to an untrained eye, to someone who's not a coach, who hasn't coached football, you can see that the coaching at the Giants is terrible. Yeah. So, Joe, let's move on then to the coaches that have been released. Probably one that is no surprise to anybody. Matt Nagy has finally gone, but along with him, the Bears GM as well, Pace. I'm not surprised about Pace, Charles. It's it's a laundry list. And just before we go into this, right, you look on forums, you look on boards, there's so much vitriol and hatred directed at men who've just lost their job. So you and I both, we're not going to, you know, rub things in. But I think just objectively, objectively look at some of the errors that Ryan Pace made. There's the obvious ones. There's the trading up to take Trubisky in what was a very strong 
quarterback class and they missed on some, you know, potential franchise leading players there. That's one thing. There's a lot of draft duds as well. You look at players like Kevin White. You look at the wide receiver room in general. So many wide receivers, you know, your Wims, Anthony Miller, Kevin White, like I mentioned. So many wide receivers have been terrible for the Bears. That really goes on the GM's table. And aside from wide receivers, stuff like Trey Burton. Trey Burton was basically a third string tight end for the Eagles. He'd done nothing there in four seasons. But he was part of a Philly special, that famous play from, what, Super Bowl 52. A couple of days after Super Bowl 52, he's put on a four-year, 32 million contract. Stuff like that. It's a casual wouldn't make mistakes like that. So there are a lot of errors that Ryan Pace has made over the years. So he was always going to be an obvious casualty. But where does the responsibility split lie then between the head coach and the GM? Because, you know, every season we see certainly the casualties of one or two head coaches and they leave the league or they move to a different team. It's not quite as regularly that we see GMs go. How much of the responsibility of, say, playing personnel is down to the GM versus down to who the head coach wants? And what is really the criteria that people look at to say, do you know what, this GM has to go? That's a really good question, Charles. And let me let me break it down into a few parts. So the responsibilities between GM and head coach will differ slightly between each team. No GM from team to team will have the exact same responsibilities. But generally, what I define the GM's role as is taking care of everything which isn't on the head coach's plate. Now, the head coach should ultimately be responsible for all football decisions. GM should cover everything else that comes from that. And that can be, you know, that can be personnel related stuff. It it can be other off field related stuff. It can be staffing issues which aren't football related. It's all of these things. But a very important distinction to make is that all because the GM is often responsible for bringing in a head coach, that's something that the GM will do. The GM shouldn't be seen as someone who's superior to the head coach in the organisation. Players have to look at someone who they're accountable to. And players should be accountable to the head coach. If you've got a GM who is kind of throwing their weight around, making out that they're the boss, then that creates awkward power relationships for those players. Because suddenly it doesn't really matter if they're impressing the head coach or if they're doing what the head coach says or following his direction exactly, they're then trying to play their tune for the GM. So the head coach ultimately has to be the alpha in charge in the building. And that's not to diminish the responsibilities of a GM at all, but I think that's something that people sometimes forget just because the GM is sometimes responsible for hiring the head coach. So then in the firing of pace, is that the Bears saying that they've not had the right staffing personnel in place is that the issue there so in terms of like personnel in terms of you know draft decisions stuff like that again it differs from team to team in terms of the power dynamics in the football club i think a team like the cowboys for example famously it's basically jerry who chooses players he likes and jerry who make the draft it was very kind of telling when we had that draft from 2020 
where it was done all kind of virtually and we were seeing inside, you know, GM's homes and head coaches' homes. And you just had Jerry kind of in his office making the calls and doing what he does. That's one way of doing it. You'll then have other kind of teams who are more kind of symbiotic, who bounce ideas between a head coach and a GM, and it'll be 50-50 or something similar to that. You'll have some teams where ultimately the head coach will make final decisions on players because they're ultimately going to play for him. And it'll be the other ways around where sometimes the GM just takes care of you know, all the personnel stuff. Ryan Pace was heavily involved in personnel choices. He was ultimately drafting. He took responsibility, for example, for Trubisky. He took responsibility for a lot of the draft strategy. And so when you look at the laundry list of failures and just personnel, what can I say, massive mistakes over the last few years, that's on pace. And there have been just so many obvious and high-profile ones that pace basically was in an untenable position. Now, had the Bears been winning, I think pace would have still been on shaky ground just because these mistakes were so bad. But the GM has that very... He's going to live and die by the sword, by the personnel choices that are made. He's responsible in a lot of ways for the culture of teams as well. And that's something that ties into another team we'll be talking about in just a minute. So that's how it kind of splits there. Okay, so that's the Bears then. Shall we have a little discussion about Denver Broncos and Fangio? Yeah, and you know, this one can probably be just summed up pretty quickly. Quarterback. Yeah. Nick Fangio. Well, yeah, he never had a winning record in his three years as head coach of the Denver Broncos. Fourth, fourth, and second once, maybe. Uh, yeah, his first season in charge had a losing record, 7-9, but came second in the AFC West. And in the last two seasons, he's been bottom, well, he's been absolutely bottom of the AFC West. And, you know, this is the AFC West that has the Raiders in and everything that's going on at the Raiders. And the Broncos haven't been able to finish above him. Now, I think that a lot of Raiders fans and the organization in general is probably quite frustrated because they believe they have the fundamentals of a strong team. And when you were speaking earlier about whether the Colts had the pieces in place, it's a narrative. And I'm not saying it's a right narrative necessarily, but there's a narrative that all the pieces are in place at the Broncos. It's just quarterback they need to sort out. And then everything's going to click and they're going to win Super Bowls. I'm not sure if that is the case. But, uh, yeah, it, it's just been the story throughout his time in charge that they haven't had the right quarterback there. Uh, this is the thing, though. This is the thing. We, what we were just saying, Fangio has been head coach. There's been a lot of movement in terms of GM. You had John Elway there, then John Elway was moved kind of sideways out of that GM role because it just wasn't working out. New GM in charge. You've got to say, well, shouldn't the GM be responsible for the quarterback and get that guy in? And there's definitely an argument for that. But it's Fangio who's fallen on his sword and he's out of a job. 63, will he get another head coach role or will he go and be a DC? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what he does next. Yeah, so obviously he's come from the defensive coaching background. I suppose what was surprising to me is the fact that they didn't really move on from their offensive coordinator, Pat Shermer, from last season. It's his second year in a job, a 33-year-old coaching vet but when the offense wasn't clicking like it was and when you're a defensive specialist why not bring in a new offensive coordinator and, and see if that can fix the issue when the issue was so clearly the quarterbacks and the offense 
I mean, either way, that hasn't happened. And you have to say, yeah, he's got to go because you're right. I mean, how many, how many shots are you going to give this guy with a new quarterback and the offense is still just lamenting? So I think it was the right call from the organization. But I just feel like there were maybe moves that could have been made before it got to this stage to have changed the outcome of things potentially. But this is on Fangio because the uh, hiring and firing of the offensive and defensive coordinators, that's on my head coach. Oh, yes. Yeah. He shouldn't be getting involved in those choices. So I personally don't think it was Schumer's fault. I think that when when the personnel you have there just aren't capable and the and they constantly bring in more quarterbacks and constantly bring in second and third rate quarterbacks who just aren't going to win you things, then uh, you can run as many different plays as you want and run as many different schemes as you want. But if you can't get execution, it doesn't really matter. But Fangio is responsible for his coordinators. So it's, it's down to him to bring in those coaches to cover his blind spots. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think it's very telling at the moment where the Broncos are looking for replacements. Cowboys offensive coordinator, Rams offensive coordinator. I think they feel like they've had their fingers burnt from a defensive coordinator coach uh, and they're now looking to fix the problem, which is the offense with someone who is very much more grounded in that universe, I suppose. Well, on the flip side of that, Charles, so moving on to the next team, you obviously know that I'm always in the forums of the Vikings, heavily involved in that. For a long, long time now, the fan base, basically for all of a season, we need an offensive-minded head coach. That's been the whinge all year. Mike Zimmer's fired, and now suddenly it's, bring in Brian Flores, bring in Brian Flores. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so fan bases, as soon as something's not working, and as soon as they have enough of, of one coach, it's like a knee-jerk thing to say that they need a coach who's minded the opposite way to, to how the current coaches. But equally, if, if there's a trendy, uh, likeable coach out there who fans want, then that can change pretty quickly. Vikings, they lost Zimmer. Now, this is very similar, I think, to what you were just saying about Vic Fangio, Zimmer, you know, extremely defensive-minded head coach. He called the defensive plays, was a defensive coordinator for a number of teams for a long time. He had Clint Kubiak as his offensive coordinator. Now, Clint Kubiak was the son of Gary Kubiak, so we've seen that nepotism kind of creep in that we do see at certain teams. Mike Zimmer never took the offensive side of the ball seriously. I think there's rumours that he didn't talk to offensive players they created a kind of defensive clique there's a lot of unsavory stories coming out about Mike Zimmer now but yeah look he's gone ultimately if you're styling yourself as a defensive guru you pretty damn well need to have a good defense and the Vikings defense has been terrible for two seasons now so absolutely no option but for Zimmer to go it was on the cards slightly surprised that slick Rick Spielman was also jettisoned he has you know to get the name Slick Rick, he has done some pretty uh, crafty moves in the drafts over the last few years. But then equally, he's had some pretty bad draft picks as well. This comes down to what I was saying about culture. I mentioned that we'd be talking about this. Culturally, there's a lot of stories which are coming out now about how the Vikings was a bit of a toxic place to work. A lot of players have been accused of, I just go there for work. But it seems to be that Zimmer you know, didn't want to have a great working atmosphere for him. He didn't want to have that kind of team spirit. It was just a very much do-your-job kind of mentality. And I think the fact that Spielman allowed that to happen has ultimately been the deciding factor, which has kind of soured his position and led to the wheels getting rid of him as well. Yeah, so 
these are the kind of non-football related elements that your GM is responsible for, the culture that the club sets. Charles, you've seen Moneyball, haven't you? Love it. <laughs> when David Justice is like, how comes I'm paying a dollar for a Pepsi? <laughs> yes. And he goes to the GM and asks that, right? This is the Spillman thing here in Vikings. How comes I'm paying a dollar for a Pepsi? This is what the situation was. And it's just that crappy working atmosphere that it's not a good place to kind of be. You're just there, you train, you do your job and you want to get out of there. That's what the Vikings, I think, had become the last few years. And then finally, before we move on from coaching changes, we mentioned him very briefly. Flores, bit of a surprise, I'd say. Bit of a surprise. Now, this one was a shock. I'm, I'm just going to give my opinion uh, on this. I've, I've given my opinion on everything else. I think that really it should be Chris Greer, the GM who does go for this one. Now, Brian Flores, another head coach who is defensively minded. It seems to be all the defensive minded coaches who've gone. Brian Flores, in the 2020 draft, wanted to pick up Justin Herbert. That was his man, who he liked. And ultimately, the GM had the final say, and the organization had the final say, and they went for Tua. Brian Flores was never really happy with a Tua pick, and that's manifested in how we've seen and how they're looking at other players like Deshaun Watson. Flores has never really had faith in Tua. Now, what has been the strong point of the Dolphins, we spoke about it a lot, their defense has been... At times, remarkable, very good. Special teams has been good as well. The offense ultimately has been the weakest unit of this team, and it's led by a quarterback. What had happened had Brian Flores got his way and this Dolphins team had drafted Justin Herbert? Now, I'm not saying they'd have gone on to win Super Bowls, I'm not saying that at all, but you've got, you'd got to think really that this would have been a pretty tasty and competitive team with Justin Herbert under center. And then, you know, we're going back to criticizing some of the defensive mining coaches for not doing their bit, which is the defense. Flores handled that very capably. Yeah. It does feel like scapegoat might be the right word to use in this scenario. It feels like he's being released when I'm not totally sure that all of the failures, if you can say that for, for the Dolphins, rest on his shoulders entirely. I don't know really what kind of what failures you can really put on him. I mean, all right, yeah, they had a terrible start to the year. They were one and seven to start off with, but they were dealing with injuries at key positions. They were dealing with injuries at quarterback. There were these problems there. But again, Brian Flores, one of the things he always mentioned when he was in college as a coach there was that he likes players who are available. And again, Tua is a player who wasn't available a lot of time for him. He had all those issues there. The defense there was strong. Someone can probably think of a couple, but I can't think springing to mind any, you know, terrible coaching calls that I saw from Brian Flores. It always seemed to just be at least solid in that regard. I think we'll see what a bad decision this would have been because if Brian Flores wants to work again, he'll get a job this offseason. I think that if he's available, a team looking for a, a head coach will take him. If that's one of the four teams that's already got rid of their coach or another one yet to get rid of their coach... I think that Flores gets a job this offseason. Keep your eyes peeled. So looking towards the postseason, I think rather than do a deep dive into every single game that's coming up, I mean, it's the playoffs. We're all excited. We're going to see some great games. We know what's coming our way. But let's take a little look at some of the key battles that we're potentially looking forward to, whether that's seeing certain parts of teams face off or individual players. So Joe... What's the kind of one thing that you're looking forward to in this group of wildcard games? You know what, Charles? I've already spoke a bit on head coaches and all that kind of stuff. Why don't you lead us into this one? 
for me in particular, the Bills and the Patriots, I felt a little bit robbed last time they faced off. It was a windy, wet, misty day in New England. And we saw, I mean, what, the Patriots threw it three times. It took a lot of the potency that the Bills team have because they rely quite a bit on their passing game away from them. Um, and what I'm really looking forward to see, and again, I'm hoping weather conditions are different this time around, but I want to see a match-off between these two, I think, equally balanced teams where they don't have any hands tied behind their back. Because I think what New England demonstrated is they have a very well-routined running game, which works based on committee, and they can put that to good use. But I'd like to see if they're still as effective when the other team has Diggs, has Allen, you know, has all their weapons at their disposal as well. Okay. I think it could be a game. I think that, you know, given the weather conditions, given Buffalo at this time of year, it'd be interesting to see if the weather allows one for the neutral, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. One game that I think will be for the neutral that could be a blockbuster, Raiders against Bengals. I think both of these teams, you just sometimes don't know what you're getting. 10-7 teams could go either way. And what I'd love to see is Burrow just keeping the offence ticking over, you know, with Chase big plays, making the yards, but then Derek Carr just, you know, hanging in hanging in there like he has done so much this season, keeping the game alive, making plays when it matters, and just keeping it a tight game. If that happens, I think we could be on for a really fun game in Cincinnati, uh, the first game of a weekend, half past nine UK time Saturday night. Okay, so you, you think that that game's got potential to be a close one, possibly? Other games, I'll talk about another game in just a minute, but I think there's I think there's three close games this weekend and three games that won't be close. And that's one of the games that I think will be close. Now, one of the other games that I think will be close, and I want to say where I think there's going to be an upset, the Cowboys are obviously coming in on a high, having really had everything clicking for the last two weeks or so. Offense has been on fire, defense has been doing its part and you know making some big plays as well. San Francisco, I feel now, with the Colts kind of being out, I think that San Fran are kind of that team that no one really wants to play because there's talent there, they're making things work, they're coached well. And San Fran, for me, are the NFC dark horses who I think are probably the under-seeded team who's going to beat the higher-seeded team. I think San Fran beat the Cowboys at Cowboy Stadium Sunday night. I absolutely love that call. That is such a shout. I mean, I would never have gone there. I mean, in my mind, the Cowboys have already won it, but... Wow, if that happens, that would be a fantastic upset to witness. I'm with you on that. What do we always say about the 49ers? And we said this a few times, that they're a team that are built to lead and not come from behind. That they're a team that runs the ball, so they need to kind of get in front, stay in front, and let the defense do their stuff. They were 17 to nothing down against the Los Angeles Rams in a game that everyone was trying to win on Sunday evening. They came from 17 to nothing down to ultimately win this game in overtime. I think this San Fran team has something about them. They've got an attitude going into these bigger games now. They've got talent across the board. They've got rookies who are performing for them. I'm looking at you, Eli Mitchell. I'm looking at some other players as well. I like San Fran. I like San Fran, and I, I don't even think, think it's really too much of a hot take. I just think that the Cowboys are just being judged on their last two games, and a lot has had to click for them. Can they keep it clicking like that? I'm not so sure. 
So, I mean, yeah, I think out of all the games that are there, I, I think if I was going to say which has the most potential for an upset, I, I think you're probably right with Bengals and Raiders just because they're both teams that have been inconsistent this season and it could go either way. I mean, I see the Rams and Cardinals as pretty much level pegging, so I think it's hard to call either victor an upset if they walk away with it. I think the other one that has a potential... Oh, and I, I feel weird saying this about Brady postseason, but the Eagles have beaten the Bucks in the regular season. They now don't have Antonio Brown. They're missing a few of their other wide receiver pieces. Could it happen? Maybe. Stranger things have happened. Do you think it will happen, though? Now, you're saying, could it happen? No, I don't think it will happen. Right, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I'd still back the yeah. Bucks. Interesting. Well, well, there you have it, right? So you've heard mine and Charles's view on these games across the weekend. Do you think you can do better? Now, we have a playoff bracket set up. The details for that are on our social media, on Facebook, Twitter. We'll probably try and get it out on Insta as well. Come and sign up to our league. Do a bracket. And if you do know better, then perhaps you can win a prize come end of season. Yep. We'll send a mug to your door. We will get you on the show and you can basically impress us with what you think's going to be coming up next season for your team because you've clearly got all the knowledge. So just to throw out some of those sites there, you can find access to it on our website, which is playsheetpodcast.com. We're also on Instagram, which is at playsheetpodcast. And then our Facebook and our Twitter is at playsheetsports. So find that link, do your playoff brackets, take part. Who knows? Everything we've said tonight is probably going to end up being wrong. You guys can come in, do something better, and go and win those prizes. Yeah, and uh, our last winner, Gav, as much as I loved him, he was pretty mean about Green Bay. He let me have it both barrels. So, you know, if someone other than Gav could win this year, that would be great. <laughs> Excellent. Get those brackets in this week, because if you don't take part in the first week, you lose all those points, and it'll make it pretty hard to come back. Joe? We've got to the end of the slightly extended regular season. We're now into some really exciting playoff football. I can't wait. Speak to you next week. Speak to you next week, Charles.